This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investment Today podcast. I'm super excited to welcome to the program Mark Viviano of Kimmeridge, a sometime activist investment firm that specializes in uh, oil and gas industry. So just a little bit of background on Mark. Mark serves as the magic partner and lead portfolio manager on Kimmeridge's public investing team, which seeks to engage with a host of publicly held oil and gas companies. Before joining Kimmeridge a few years ago, Mark spent 17 years at Wellington Management, primarily focused on portfolio management and research analysis of companies in the energy sector. So thanks, Mark, for taking the time to speak with us. And maybe you can tell me a little about Kimmeridge's public investing platform and how and and why it was formed. Yeah, thanks, Ron. Excited to be on the podcast. So as you mentioned, prior to joining Kimmeridge in early 2020, I'd spent 17 years at Wellington Management. And the way I worked at Wellington is they valued career sector specialists, and they always believed there was a real competitive advantage to knowing a sector better than anybody else. So I'd spent 15 years investing in the energy sector. And if I stayed, I probably was going to spend the next 15 years in the energy sector. But the problem was the sector was broken and was largely uninvestable. And originally, it was the flawed capital allocation, misalignment of incentives that was well-documented over time, but increasingly, it was the risks associated with the energy transition. And I would have generalist portfolio managers at Wellington come to me and say, I think oil is going away in 10 years. Why would I bother investing in the sector? Especially when you had these companies investing all of their cash flow to grow production. It just didn't make any sense given the uncertainty around long-term demand. And so I, I was at this crossroads where I either needed to abandon the sector or find a way to help reposition it. Mm-hmm. And obviously, at Wellington, we were engaging with the CEOs and boards as large shareholders. But the progress we were making around reforming the business model was far too incremental from my perspective. And what I also saw when I was at Wellington was that as soon as an activist got involved with a particular company, there was a heightened degree of engagement, Mm -hmm. especially at the board level and this acceleration of change. So I knew that's what the sector needed, but Wellington just wasn't set up culturally or organizationally for activism. Mm -hmm. And the same time I was having these concerns, I, I had known Ben Dell and Neil McMahon. They were two of the founding partners at Kimbridge from when they were on the sell side back at Bernstein. I met them in 2004. Mm-hmm. And after launching Kimbridge as a private equity firm in 2012, they had identified the value opportunity emerging within the public sector back in 2018. But they also recognized you needed to push for changes if you were going to unlock any of that value. And so I had started having conversations with Ben in late 2019, where I basically said, you want to do more in the public sector. And I need the right platform to accelerate change in the industry. And so early 2020, we ended up launching a public investment strategy focused on catalyzing change within the industry through engagement and activism. That is really interesting. Yeah, no, I've interviewed some people at Wellington, and I know they're very rarely will do something activist. I vaguely remember one uh, where they got involved in an announced merger, but I could see if you want to be activist, definitely Cambridge is the place to be. (laughs) So tell me, okay, so you advocate for some a new exploration production business model. So tell us about that. I know, you know, the, the big example in that uh, in activism in the energy space, of course, was engine number one's Exxon mobile campaign, which, you know, with the 0.02% stake, they were pushing Exxon to invest less in what they consider to be risky oil exploration and more into renewables and things like that. Is that your business model is kind of focused on a bit or what does it look like? Yeah. So shortly after I joined in February 2020, we started publishing a series of white papers focused on what we referred to as the three pillars of reform, which we felt were necessary to align the EMP business model with the energy transition. And those three pillars were the operating model, 
the governance and the environmental stewardship. Our goal was basically to get companies to stop drilling on economic wells, to stop destroying value, to provide a more prescriptive capital allocation framework around reinvestment rates and to dramatically increase the return of capital. And then we wanted to address the shareholder alignment issues through reforming executive compensation. And finally, we wanted to address the environmental deficiencies, no more flaring, no more venting methane into the atmosphere. Essentially, what we were talking about, Ron, was being a responsible steward of capital and of the environment in the hopes of attracting investors back to a sector that had been abandoned. And you know, I'll admit, I was even surprised how quickly the industry adopted a lot of the principles we were writing about. I was just going to say, uh, just for our listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with the oil and gas exploration and production space, if you could talk a little about uh, what you meant by pushing companies to limit their flaring. I know that that was something that you guys pushed for at Aventive in a campaign campaign there. So maybe talk about that and what are the environmental issues with flaring and what is that all about? Yeah, so I think, I mean, it's generally recognized that natural gas is an advantage fuel, particularly relative to coal when you think about power generation. But a lot of the focus has been on the environmental waste that is produced during the extraction process. Mm -hmm. And part of that is if a company is producing oil and gas and doesn't have sufficient takeaway capacity on it. So it doesn't have a pipeline connected to that well mm-hmm. to move the gas to market. It essentially flares the gas. And what that means is essentially lighting a big flame mm-hmm. and uh, releasing methane into the atmosphere. And if you look at all the studies that have been done, methane has a dramatically larger impact on the environment from a near-term perspective than uh, CO2 emissions, 25 times the amount. And so what this industry needed to do was stop that environmental waste, stop venting methane, stop flaring gas, and ultimately own the environmental performance of its operations. So, okay, so maybe a way to kind of get into this a little bit is to look at an example. And we wrote about in last year, uh, you launched this proxy contest at Aventive, where you succeeded at getting one board seat in a settlement, a big success. And you'd been pushing Aventive to transform its capital allocation strategy, restructure its executive compensation scheme and improve its imperial impact with this less flaring, flaring less natural gas. So maybe talk about that as an example of, of activism. You, you guys launched a director contest there, right? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, while we were publishing our research in early 2020, we all were also raising capital to implement the strategy that I discussed at the beginning of the conversation. So we went out and identified the companies we thought were undervalued because of the specific deficiencies in those three areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we were writing about and where we thought we could catalyze change through our engagement and activism. And, and we made our initial investment in a company called Ovintiv. And, and this was a company I knew well, because when I was at Wellington, we had been their largest shareholder at one point. Mm-hmm. But despite that history, we were disappointed in the lack of receptivity to our private engagement. So we ended up formally launching a public campaign in early 2021, focused on what we referred to as a track record of value destruction at the company. And the goal of the campaign was to catalyze change and help reposition Ovintiv to attract investors by establishing a strong track record of improving capital allocation, governance, and environmental performance. And soon after launching that campaign, we saw meaningful progress and receptivity on a number of the issues we had raised, and, and a settlement was deemed to be in the best interest of shareholders. And the way I think about it is, over the course of our investment, the stock meaningfully outperformed. We saw 10 different sell-side upgrades. Three of the board members were refreshed, including, as you mentioned, one of our nominees. And the CEO announced his retirement within four months of our settlement. So I viewed it as a very successful campaign that only increased my conviction in the merits of activism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so did they flare less natural gas for the environmental aspect? Just out of curiosity. 
Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. And in the fall of 2021, so not too far along after our settlement, they actually came out and said they were already in alignment with the World Bank Zero Routine Flaring Initiative. So they were one of the first companies to reach that. And I will tell you that when we initially made that investment, it was a company that did not have any targets from an environmental perspective, didn't have any methane emission reduction targets, didn't have any GHG emission reduction targets. And it's a very different company today than when we initially invested in it. You know, I always feel like there's this kind of pressure with uh, two types of investors in the oil and gas space. You know, the ones that are really focused on dividends and aren't very environmentally friendly investors. All they care about is their dividend. And then you have these kind of ESG investors. And we keep talking about how the ESG, for our listeners who may not know, environmental social governance investors who are really pushing for environmental improvement, sustainability at these oil and gas companies. Is part of the goal of this to kind of attract these kind of investors beyond Kimmeridge and Kimmeridge is kind of the catalyst for that? Yeah, I mean, I think we straddle that line better than most that have attempted to, which is we understand the oil and gas business well. Kimmeridge is a private operator. We have our own internal operating team. We have geologists and engineers. So we understand the dynamics of the oil and gas industry. But we also believe that you're not attracting long-term investors back into the sector until you have a different ESG profile which means addressing the issues around governance and and particularly around environmental performance. And I think that if you want to attract investors back to a sector that's been abandoned for so long, that's really the only path forward. Okay. So one area that I think you've touched on a little bit, but I really want to delve into is uh, executive compensation at oil and gas companies. And I wrote an article last week about how the Securities and Exchange Commission just adopted a long languishing proposal that will make it easier for investors to understand the relationship between executive compensation and total shareholder returns and other metrics such as income and things like that and gives companies the option to do non-financial metrics for up to four non-financial metrics, which I was told by some experts in the industry, some investors could push for companies to consider these non-financial metrics. So I guess uh, there's also this Meridian Compensation Partners report that found that at the end of June 2021, sand pay votes in the oil and gas industry surpassed average votes on executive compensation for the S&P 500. And, you know, I always consider that to be kind of a, what's sort of looking for, a canary in the coal mine, an indicator that an activist could emerge if there's a huge number of shares voting against the pay package in a non-binding vote. That could attract an activist, in my opinion, because the activist knows that there's a large disgruntled shareholder base and activists often focus on executive compensation. So with all that, I threw a bunch of things out at you there, Mark. Talk to me about Kimmeridge and your strategy in oil and gas as it comes to executive compensation. Is it about tying pay to performance and TSR performance, or is there also an ESG aspect to your efforts? Yeah, I mean, reforming governance and executive compensation was one of the cornerstones of, of that campaign against Ovintiv. I mean, this was a company that had one of the worst relationships between pay and performance in the industry. And, and what you saw in February 2021, only a month after we went public, they announced a number of initiatives related to reforming governance and compensation. And the foundation for our engagement on these issues was the white paper we published back in November 2020 where we argued there was a lack of alignment and accountability, which was driving the problematic behavior in the industry. This was one of the highest paid industries, despite being the worst performing sector on a three, five, even 10-year basis. And we highlighted how compensation structures in the industry were completely asymmetric, which just resulted in this pro-cyclical bias in the industry and, and excessive risk taking, 
We also noted a fundamental lack of accountability where anything negative that happened could just be blamed on the commodity price, where these management teams were simply viewed as a victim of their circumstances. So in that paper, we identified four main principles for reforming executive compensation. And they were, one, eliminate all growth metrics and discretion from short-term incentives, two, adopt long-term incentives that are 100% performance-based versus time-based, three, de-emphasize relative TSR for absolute TSR and long-term financial measures, and then finally, increase change of control payouts with improved shareholder alignment in order to incentivize the much-needed consolidation in the industry. And I'll tell you, we saw a lot of receptivity to reforming executive compensation where I was presenting to boards of companies we weren't even invested. And we saw the biggest changes from companies that were emerging from bankruptcy, which just highlights the benefits of having a blank sheet of paper and the challenges of inertia within public companies. So you referenced the Meridian study. Mm-hmm. Meridian is one of the primary compensation consultants for the industry. And they recently published an analysis showing that strong support for say on pay votes in the sector, which they define as over 90% investor support, has grown from 68% back in 2018 to 81% of companies in 2021. At a time where the same level of strong support amongst Russell 3000 companies, so effectively the benchmark, had declined from 76 to 73%. So the industry went from well below average to well above average within four years. And that just speaks to the progress the industry has made in addressing the issues around alignment and accountability in the compensation plans that we and others have been vocal about. Yeah, so that's interesting. So I can maybe delve into a little bit about, I was interested since I work at the deal about your increasing the change of control payments to help drive consolidation in the industry. I always think that a CEO of a company, if they're not compensated in a change of control situation well, then they'll be disincentivized to do a good job during an auction process for fear of losing their job and having to find another job. And you know, I know that there's a lot of concerns in the world, oh, you're getting too big change of control compensation package. But I also feel like there's this other angle that's important. But as a reporter, whenever I see an AK where the company has a, adjusted its change of control executive compensation plan, my the red flags go up for me. I'm thinking, well, this company might be up for sale. Who knows? Maybe there's an activist agitating at this company. So I started digging around a bit more. But so talk about that. And then maybe you could talk a little about, you know, are there some non-financial metrics that you'd like to see related to executive compensation? Because we're seeing you know more and more of a push for that from the what I consider to be the gadfly, the smaller, you know, the shareholder proposal type activist. And I'm wondering if that's a trend. Yeah, I mean, on your, on your first point, yeah, it's funny how financial incentives dictate behavior, but I think you're exactly right. And ultimately, the analysis we did showed that the average EMP company CEO had a change of control premium that was less than three times their annual salary. And so effectively, if you could just retain your job for three years, you were better off than selling the company. Mm-hmm. And so we're really focused on, well, how do you in- increase the change of control payout, but obviously retain alignment with shareholders? Mm-hmm. And one of the ideas we proposed was introducing a larger change of control premium if the departing CEO would take stock in the combined company, oh, that's which the- effectively would align them with shareholders. And it's interesting because if you look at the Whiting CEO mm-hmm. post the bankruptcy emergence of Whiting, adopted something similar, saying that they would take one-third of the change of control within restricted stock in the company. Uh, We've had one large merger within the EMP sector this year, which was Whiting and Oasis. So I do think those things matter, and it's something that we're increasingly focused on, is how do we reform change of control premiums to make sure that companies are incentivized for consolidation? So on your website, you talk about carbon solution strategy to accelerate the energy transition to net zero. 
And is there an ESG angle to your executive compensation suggestions as well? Or is there some other things that companies need to do to, you know, become more sustainable? Yeah, I mean, you know, we wrote our initial environmental white paper in the summer of 2020. It was called Charting a Path to Net Zero Emissions. And, And we're effectively making two arguments, right? Divesting or avoiding the sector has no impact on the environment because the world still uses the same amount of oil. And then connected to this idea is that U.S. shale is actually well-positioned on a relative basis for the energy transition, but the industry has been its own worst enemy, right? Going back to our initial comments around the need to stop flaring, to stop venting methane into the atmosphere, we actually came out with a, a subsequent white paper earlier this year talking about the acceleration of net zero commitments. And that's because the world's fundamentally changed since that initial white paper. There's now an increased awareness that the energy transition is going to need to balance reliability and affordability with environmental impact. And we're learning in real time that you can't wish away oil and gas demand. It's not going anywhere and a premature transition will prove inflationary. And so we think that this industry needs to show it's going to be part of the solution And the best way to do that is to accelerate net zero commitments with enhanced credibility and accountability. So to your question, the accountability component comes back to incentive compensation. Mm -hmm. We we don't need any more of these hero statements around 2040, 2050 net zero commitments when the average CEO's tenure is less than seven years. So what we're asking the industry to do is to put out net zero commitments accelerated to 2030 with emission reduction targets incorporated into its long-term incentives. So there's actually better alignment between the commitments and the performance time horizons within the company. Are you talking about vesting of stock options for the CEO to shorter term net zero commitments? Is, is that what you're suggesting? Or Yeah, we, we actually highlighted an example in the white paper for a company called EQT that what they effectively did is they put a modifier its long-term performance units that said if they didn't meet their net zero commitment by 2024, reduce the total performance share units granted to management teams. That is a very different approach than we've seen from the industry so far. And we actually think it's the right path forward. That is very interesting. It's so interesting to see that. Yeah, we followed that EQT fairly closely here and some activist campaigns there not too long ago. Okay. So you kind of answered this already, but I wanted to see if you could be a little bit more explicit, which is you know, when it comes to ESG activism and the larger activist investors out there, I often see this trend of the activists. I mean, I haven't seen it that much in the last six months or so, but the activists pushing to have companies broken up. And of course, the, the big examples of this was Third Point, wanted to see Shell to separate its oil extraction refining business into, uh, you know, what I guess would be considered the brown business. And then you know, separate that from its renewables, liquefied natural gas, and service station operations, a separate business, which I guess would be the green business. Although the sell side analyst that I spoke to about that pointed out to me that you know, when it comes to scope three emissions, which are the, I guess, emissions of people using your energy, you know, the, the green business is not that green. I mean, these service, <laughs> station, service stations, you know, car people fill their gas tank up with gas and they make a lot of carbon emissions driving their cars around. So I guess it depends on whether you're considering what area of emissions you're talking about, the core company emissions or emissions from the products the company uses. So anyways, I mean, Shell did not break up the way uh, Third Point wanted, and Elliott Management had a similar campaign at SSE, and I can't remember there's another one that tried to break up the companies. doesn't sound like Kimmeridge. I mean, has Kimmeridge pushed for a breakup into a green company, brown company? It sounds like your argument is more of the, you know, you need to focus on the whole business and reduce emissions and just separating into two. I, I guess the third point argument was that if they separated Shell into two, all these 
ESG investors, the billions being pumped into ESG would go to the green business. But I don't know. Those companies haven't broken out. Yeah. I mean, my view on that has been you can't be overly philosophical about the right structure to maximize shareholder value. I mean, you have to let the market inform your decision based on valuations and, and relative cost of capital. But I, I mean, I could envision a scenario where investors want a company that provides exposure to oil and gas prices today, but ultimately shrinks that business over time as the world transitions away from, from fossil fuels, like a lot of the integrated companies are talking about today. But realistically, those two businesses may attract very different shareholders and, and garner very different valuations. And it is a question we debate with our most recent investment, which is a company called California Resources. Mm-hmm. And they're a mature California oil producer with the potential for a high growth carbon capture business. So those ultimately belong in the same company. I mean, you could argue that an ideal investment for the energy transition is a company that's generating significant free cash flow today from its oil production, but it's going to be converting its depleted reservoirs into carbon storage and, and real estate development. They'd be addressing the terminal value risk by diversifying on the back of a maturing oil business. But I don't know the answer yet because they're in the early stages of launching that carbon management business. Are, are you saying that there are synergies in terms of a sustainability and shareholder return between the two parts of that business? Or you're thinking it should be separated? It sounded like you're saying there, there are synergies between the two sides, but it's, 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 well, it needs to be borne out. Yeah, today there are operational synergies because effectively to receive a permit from the EPA to suggest that you could store carbon for the next 100 years, you're going to need a company with scale and a, and a balance sheet. And an emerging or startup company in that space is really going to struggle to convince anybody that they have the financial wherewithal to do that. The question is, over time, as you build that business and as you build scale, do you garner the appropriate valuation within an oil and gas company? The honest answer is we don't know because these are emerging businesses. But I think that's something that we're all facing as we think about the energy transition over the next 10, 20 years, is what is the right business model? And how do you address the terminal value risk? And I think companies that have those businesses that can grow on the back of a depleting oil business are going to be differentiated. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it sounds to me that you know, it's possibly down the road, you might consider this idea that we saw these other activists where you would break up the company and you'd have this kind of oil business that's in kind of secular decline separated, but it has to be a strong, separate, renewable or green business, carbon capture, for example. But right now, in that example, it's, now it's not the time. Yeah, it's just too early. It's too early in the evolution and adoption of those business models. But I think it's definitely on the table. Okay. All right. We don't have a lot of time. I kind of skipped over one question I wanted to just go back on, which is this, you know, get a sense of what kind of activist Kimmeridge is. And, you know, I know you launched the director contest at Aventive and you had some success there gaining a director seat and the company did a bunch of other changes, as you talked about. But I'm just trying to get a sense. It seems like Kimmeridge is more of kind of a collaborative, behind-the-scenes activist that will engage companies and make all these suggestions to them on ESG to executive compensation and on board and capital allocation and all these different things. And, and maybe on occasion, you might escalate into a director contest or a public paper. I mean, how would you describe Kimmeridge as an activist? I mean, I think there's a fundamental difference in our approach to activism because we're trying to address the root cause of the problems related to capital allocation, governance, and environmental performance, rather than just trying to create a trading catalyst for a short-term pop in the stock. And, And our approach is built around leading with constructive engagement, trying to help reposition companies to attract long-term investors. But that engagement is definitely enhanced by a demonstrated ability to cross over into shareholder activism, if necessary. I mean, from my perspective, that reputation is essential 
for accelerating real change. Going back to my experience at Wellington, I just found traditional engagement doesn't work as advertised. Mm -hmm. We had a really big carrot because we could buy or or sell a lot of stock, but we had no stick. Mm -hmm. So I much prefer the speak softly and carry a big stick approach to engagement. Mm -hmm. Just out of curiosity, I should know this. I should go look at your 13F files, but how many stakes do you guys typically own at any one time? It's generally around four or five names at any one time. Mm -hmm. Very okay. concentrated approach to investing in the public sector. Okay. Well, I mean, that tells me that, you know, most of your investments are uh, kind of collaborative behind the scenes, but it, it sounds like, you know, once or twice a year, you'll, you'll launch a campaign. So, and definitely with this area of sustainability being such a big focus in the oil and gas space, it sounds like your strategy is going to be something that uh, people will be paying attention to for the months and years to come. So it's been really interesting talking to you. That's all the time we have today. You've been listening to the Activist Investor Today podcast with Ron Oral. We've been talking to Mark Viviano of Kimmeridge. Thanks, Mark, for taking the time. Yeah, thanks, Ron. I really appreciate the conversation.